once again, my name is Andrew Kurtz, licensed marriage and family therapist. My pronouns are he, him, and his. Clinical specialist with UCLA Integrated Substance Abuse Programs. As I mentioned, we're also affiliated with those addiction technology transfer centers through SAMHSA. Uh, and we cover the Pacific Southwest region. So our training region is California, Arizona, Nevada, Hawaii, and then the six U.S. Pacific jurisdictions. Um, there is a, a unique impact on that particular region related to stimulants that we'll take a look at a little bit later on. Uh, and I think it's particularly noteworthy to focus on the way in which our perspective on the issue of stimulants may be slightly different here in LA County than other regions of the country. Uh, and so I'd be interested to get your your experiences with that as we're going forward to see if that kind of reflects the data and if it reflects some other providers' experiences that I've heard about recently. So this conversation about stimulants, uh, what we are drawing upon today is a, a curriculum that was developed as part of a, a national core training product that was developed through the Addiction Technology Transfer Center. Um, we at UCLA are the Pacific Southwest region of the Addiction Technology Transfer Centers, region number nine. And so I'll tell you a little bit about what we do, but this is a three-hour virtual adaptation of that day-long curriculum. So you're getting all of kind of the, the meat of that uh, training distilled down into three hours, and we're going to conduct it over the virtual format, but we've kept a lot of the same activities embedded in this because I think they're still useful, and I think you'll still have an opportunity to, to engage around those. Um, but we will, as we're going forward, uh, we'll provide some additional resources beyond this slide set for opportunities to expand your, your learning as much as you feel relevant, additional training products, additional workbooks, uh, not necessarily anything that you would have to join or sign up for, but resources that are available for you uh, to print out, to peruse uh, whenever you have time to do so. We'll try to supplement what we're talking about here with that information because we know that this is a really, really complex topic. Uh, and, and we could probably spend way more than three hours on this. Our, our objectives for today are really broadly to equip you with as much information about stimulants as possible um, so that you feel capable, so that you feel comfortable talking about this with clients, so that you feel capable of, of uh, identifying symptoms related to stimulant use, so that you have that conceptualization to find some clinical utility in bridging the gap between some of the kind of didactic information that we're going to be talking about here uh, and what you might do with it in a treatment setting. So we're going to start by looking at different trends. We'll look at some of the, the data around stimulant use and, and those recent national trends. We'll look at differences between cocaine and methamphetamine. Uh, we'll ex uh, look at some different examples of cognitive impacts that are associated with use. Uh, and then we'll start to connect that to uh, different physiological impacts that people may experience as they're using, how that may present behaviorally. And then we'll look at uh, a few different behavioral treatment approaches that have been shown to be effective in addressing stimulant use disorder in clinical populations. As I said, this is a, a pretty comprehensive roadmap. We're going to cover as much as we can. We'll pack in as much information as we can. But don't hesitate to ask a question, even if it doesn't seem related to what we're talking about at that point in time. Uh, I can almost guarantee it's going to be useful for this conceptualization that we have uh, of our learning objectives today. 
this is one of those trainings that tends to to get a really really broad swath of of different providers. I, I think because because of how ubiquitous stimulant issues can be in different health settings, uh, it seems to be for better or worse, particularly relevant for a number of different providers. It's encouraging in that way to to know that everybody is working in a concerted way. Uh, it's a little bit unfortunate that we have so many different people dealing with this in in uh, in the high prevalence in your setting. Um, that's kind of the the flip side of it. But it's nice to always have kind of a, a mix of different perspectives when we're talking about stimulant use issues. Uh, quick note: this is just something that we embed in all of our trainings. Uh, or we try to, it, it's just a general recognition that when we're talking about these clinical issues, we defer to clinical terms, we defer to clinical language, uh, but we recognize that the type of language that we use and the, the words that we use really have a, a degree of power. And there are ways and there are times in which the language that we use can, can stigmatize uh, or exacerbate stigmatization, or even potentially discrimination and bias among particular individuals, particular groups of people. And so we always aim in our trainings, uh, we try to model this and we try to encourage you all to think about this as well, um, to note that language matters and that we want to use words that put people first. Uh, it, it, this can be tricky. I, I struggle with this when I'm thinking about diagnostic criteria, when I'm thinking about assessment and conceptualization. I naturally defer to being a little bit more pathologizing, to be a little bit more deficit focused. Uh, and it, it's a matter of broadly conceptualizing that not everybody who comes into services, not everybody who comes in to see me is going to be as clued into that world of, of clinical language as I am. Uh, and those words may carry a very different connotation in those types of interactions. Um, that's true in a, a client setting. That's true in a training setting as well. And so we always aim to, to use language that puts people first. Uh, it's an ongoing process for me in particular, I know. And so if there's a point in time uh, where I'm using language that, that doesn't fit with this ideal, um, you're entirely welcome to send me a message. You're entirely welcome to call me out on that because that's, that's one of the ways that, that I know I learn is, is to continue to think about how language evolves and in, in uh, better looking at a strengths-based perspective with clients. This is a three-part training. Uh, we're going to go over the scope of stimulant use to start, and then we're going to think about a conceptualization of the, the kind of neurological basis of stimulant use, and then we'll talk about treatment recommendations. So those are kind of the three parts for today's training, uh, pretty nicely, neatly organized because we have three hours to go through. And so we're going to start with this first part of the scope of stimulant use issues in the United States and beyond. Uh, we will focus specifically in the United States and regionally, uh, but we're also going to take a look at this um, worldwide. What are some of the issues related to stimulant use that, that people tend to encounter? And before we get into this, we'll do our final poll of the day. What stimulant do you tend to encounter the most uh, frequently in your work with your clients? All right, meth is the one that seems to be coming up the most. That is not all that surprising. Uh, given the, the um, client populations that you're serving, given what we understand about kind of the trends related to stimulants, it doesn't surprise me that 89% of you are saying that meth is the one that you encounter most frequently. Cocaine does not come up 
that much. Um, I, I know that when I was doing uh, community mental health, I was working in spa six, very rarely would people talk about cocaine. And if they did, it was kind of a, a one-off, like they tried it at a party. Uh, it wasn't something that people were really managing on an ongoing basis. Uh, when I work with providers now who are working in private treatment facilities, like the, the really fancy ones in Malibu, yeah, cocaine comes up a lot, uh, way more than, than it would have in, in my other work. But I think you, you see those differences that are reflective of certain demographics shifts between treatment facilities, between different communities. Uh, and it's, it's worth thinking about not just those differences from a, a physiological or neurochemical standpoint, but almost from a, a sociological standpoint. Um, there are trends that are worth highlighting related to those differences that we'll talk about in just a little bit. Uh, prescription stimulants. Okay, a few of you not too much with MDMA or ecstasy, uh, caffeine at 32%. Yeah, we're not really going to talk about caffeine because caffeine doesn't really tend to come up in terms of a focus in treatment. Just from a, a diagnostic standpoint, it's going to be really rare that you're going to be working with someone who is coming into treatment because they are experiencing clinically significant impairment in functioning as a result of caffeine use. Not to say it doesn't happen, but uh, again, given the work that you're doing and the level of impairment that people are experiencing when they come in, caffeine is often kind of on the back burner. It's not one of those things that's going to be a really important focus. Um, nobody endorsed bath salts, which is surprising, but also good to hear uh, that that hopefully is not coming up all that frequently. We're not going to focus specifically on bath salts in this particular training, but I'll, I'll try to embed that as we go forward if it seems relevant. Uh, and then a number of you said other, and so if there's something that we missed in this category or in these categories, uh, let me know in the chat. We'll talk a little bit about Kratom. Um, I think we talked a little bit about CAT during this training, some different forms of stimulants. Um, neither one is all that prevalent. Uh, in a clinical setting, but it may come up in your conversations with clients. And so it might be relevant to, to just be aware that those are out there. All right. So let's dive into what we're going to be talking about. Let's talk a little bit about the scope of this issue. What we know globally, so we're talking about amphetamine type stimulants or ATS. These constitute the third most widely used illicit drug category in the world. So it follows cannabis and opioids. Again, we're not considering things like nicotine or alcohol in this conceptualization because those aren't illicit drugs. Uh, those are legalized. They're available, generally speaking. Uh, and so we're focused on illicit drugs when we're talking about this ranking. Amphetamine-type stimulants rank third. The type of amphetamine varies depending on region. And, and we see these kinds of trends with other substances as well that in Europe and the Middle East, we see amphetamines as being a little bit more popular. In the US, Australia, and Southeast Asia, methamphetamine is going to be a little bit more prevalent. Generally, what we tend to see, uh, so I mentioned our training region extends out into the Pacific, but we've also worked with a number of different organizations in the Middle East. We've worked with different organizations in Southeast Asia. And wh what we tend to notice is that while the substance the, the prevalence or the popularity of a particular substance may be slightly different region to region. 
a lot of the issues related to substance use are similar. A lot of the, the impacts, a lot of the, the reason that people start using, uh, there's a lot of similarities there globally. Uh, there, the, the difference between these products is chemical in nature. And so what we recognize is that there are different precursors used in the manufacturing of these different amphetamine type stimulants. And the precursors are a chemical that is used to synthesize the eventual outcome of amphetamines or methamphetamines. There are approximately 27 million people who are using stimulants worldwide. Methamphetamine, to give you some examples of that, it can come in powdered form, crystallized form, or tablets. Um, the powder is typically inhaled, smoked, or injected. The, the, the crystallized form, here it is, ice sometimes is typically smoked. Um, and then tablets are, are either orally consumed, they're crushed and inhaled, smoked or injected. Uh, amphetamines, you get those typically in powder tablets or liquid form. They can be orally consumed, injected, or smoked. Uh, and so those are the main routes of administration that we're typically thinking about. Again, you'll typically see different routes of administration chosen depending on the type of substance because it will produce different effects depending on if somebody's using meth versus cocaine. The major regions of use that we tend to see are, are broad. Eastern and Southeast Asia, Australia and Oceania, uh, North America, Central, Eastern, Northern Europe, Middle East, and South Africa, uh, you see it, it having increases in uh, the prevalence of these types of substances in those regions that are listed at the bottom there. If we look at cocaine, you have approximately 19 million people who use cocaine worldwide. Uh, it's typically a powdered form that is sniffed, injected, or smoked. Uh, crack is the slightly uh, modified version. There's some adulterants that are added into the cocaine that um, change the effect of the cocaine powder, uh, and then that's typically smoked. The major regions of use are in South America and North America, uh, predominantly in urban centers that are disproportionately impacting African-American or, or uh, black communities. And then you've seen increases recently in Central and Western Europe and then increases in South and Western Africa as well. The, the graph here is a uh, representation of the greatest drug threat reported by field division uh, reported by state and local agencies within certain field divisions. And so if we take a look at these different regional centers, you'll get a sense of what is coming up most frequently in the United States in these different, uh, in these different regions. Uh, this data it comes from a variety of different sources. Uh, it includes survey data. It includes information about drug seizures. Uh, and so there's quite a bit of information that goes into this representation here. What you'll notice is that the, the substances that are coming up in the West are very different than what comes up on the East Coast and than what's coming up kind of in the, the Southeast of the, the country. Um, we are seeing a lot more methamphetamine use issues or a lot more methamphetamine seizures than uh, on the East Coast or even in the, the middle parts of the country. As you move west, you're seeing more and more methamphetamine. Um, we'll talk about why that is in just a little bit. Does anybody have any idea why would that be the case? 
Why is it that on the East Coast, you're seeing a lot more, we kind of generally know why there's a lot more heroin use issues, but as you start to move West, you're seeing a lot more methamphetamine. Why is that the case? Um, yeah, I, I think there's a, a couple different reasons as to why that potentially could be the case. Um, one of the considerations is you're thinking about uh, rural areas, you're thinking about socioeconomic factors, you're thinking about distribution routes, you're thinking about potentially the, the markets for these types of substances. If you're thinking about broad distribution networks based on, on cartel activities uh, or organized um, crime activities, those are some of the factors that go into it. It might be easier to get in certain areas, right? And so you might have certain manufacturing hubs. You might have, uh, again, these networks that are established in certain areas that facilitate the availability of these different substances. It may also just be a trend based on the availability or lack thereof of other substances like opioids or heroin or fentanyl. Uh, and so we'll, we'll keep that in mind as we're moving forward. I don't know that there's one good answer to that, but generally speaking, you do tend to see higher rates of, of meth use in more rural areas uh, outside of larger city centers, not to say that that doesn't happen. Uh, and then you tend to see more manufacturing occurring in those areas as well. That may be part of it. Uh, it may have to do, as I talked about again, some of the dynamics related to uh, trade, drug trafficking, uh, and the, the, the routes that are available um, for that. Good. If we take a look at the reports of methamphetamine, so this is based on, on um, lab data uh, of substances that were seized, that were tested, and uh, came back as positive for methamphetamine. You're seeing a slight dip between 2007 and 2012, and then a, a greater increase following that. Again, a couple possible reasons for that. Changes in uh, federal standards in terms of cracking down on meth labs occurred around this time, which caused uh, manufacturers and chemists to shift their production methods. You also had at this time kind of a concurrent proliferation of opioid use issues. So there may have been a slight handoff in terms of the availability of substances, uh, it could have been due somewhat to uh, changes in DEA policy uh, and crackdown on meth labs that were happening around this time. As you know, whenever you're looking at these trends, it's never just one thing. I think these types of graph graphs don't encapsulate the entire story, uh, but it's it's interesting and, and unfortunate to note that while there was that slight dip, uh, the reports continue to increase. There isn't a ton of data at this point on the impact of COVID-19 on substance use trends. There are some beginning formulations as to how it's going to or how it has impacted these types of trends. Generally speaking, the perspective is that prior to uh, the, the physical distancing and the, the lockdowns that were initiated related to COVID-19, that most of these lines were trending in the wrong direction, that we we're seeing increased reports, we we're seeing increased issues related to methamphetamine uh, and synthetics. That seems like it's going to be the case going forward. So if you're in a setting and it seems like you're encountering this more and more, uh, it's not surprising, it's a little bit disheartening. I know that there's a lot of challenges that have come up uh, for people during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, and I, I imagine we'll continue to see the effects of that for uh, a while now.
If we take a look at the national trend estimates for stimulants and cannabis, what you have here is you, you see the trend line score methamphetamine uh, reports from 2001 to 2019 compared to cannabis, THC, and then cocaine. Uh, cannabis and THC, generally speaking, has been decreasing. Cocaine, generally speaking, has been decreasing and has plateaued somewhat. Unfortunately, methamphetamine continues to increase at a, a fairly substantial rate. If we look at the top drug offenses by state, so this is a, a study that looked at uh, the reason that people were being incarcerated, uh, the reason that people were, what types of drug-related issues were coming up. Um, they found that 50% that of all the inmates in federal prison throughout the U.S. are serving sentences for a drug-related offense. Um, so half of all the individuals who are incarcerated in federal prison are there for some drug-related issue. Uh, methamphetamine was noted as uh, the specific drug offense in 27 of the 50 states. So while that's not to say that other substances aren't playing a role in the development of substance use issues, if we're looking at this solely from a legal standpoint, you're seeing how prevalent meth is uh, and, and how much that comes up related to ongoing functional impairments from a legal standpoint. Again, some different regional differences. You see that uh, cocaine is going to be a little bit more of a, a prevalent offense in the Upper East Coast. Uh, in the Southwest, you're seeing marijuana continuing to be an issue. Uh, but by and large, meth is the top drug offense in the country. This is a, a breakdown of past month use. And so this survey data is published each year, and it gives us a sense of the number of people who are reporting past month use in each of these categories of substances. Obviously, alcohol is going to be the most prevalent. Over half of the people in the United States, 12 or older, are past month users of alcohol. Again, availability, the fact that it's legalized, social acceptedness, uh, all of that plays a role in that really high prevalence rate. Tobacco is then the next most frequently reported substance. But again, these are separated out slightly because these are not considered illicit substances. These are considered legalized substances that would have a potential detrimental behavioral, mental, or physical health impact. Kratom is listed there next, even though Kratom is not necessarily as prevalent as something like marijuana. Uh, marijuana is continuing to increase. I imagine it will continue to increase uh, year over year. We'll see how much longer it's classified as an illicit substance with ongoing trends in legalization, but it is still classified as such at the federal level. And then what you have is a breakdown of prescription medication misuse. So this is not a representation of the number of individuals who are using something like a prescription pain reliever, but those individuals who are misusing those types of prescription medications, whether they are prescribed to them or not, or if they got them from someone else. So when you see this type of data going forward, where it incorporates prescriptions uh, or prescription medications, the survey data is typically based on individuals noting that they are using a medicine either not as it was intended or not with a specific doctor's recommendation. So we're really talking about illicit misuse of prescription medications in these types of surveys. Uh, cocaine is going to be the most commonly misused uh, stimulant. And then you have methamphetamine, 
a little bit lower there, 1.2 million individuals. Uh, and then you have prescription stimulant misuse just a little bit higher than methamphetamine issues. This may not necessarily represent the breakdown that you see in treatment. Right? We, we did our poll. We saw that most people responded that methamphetamine was the most prevalent. And that makes sense. You may be seeing a greater proportion of the individuals from the methamphetamine group here because of the associated detriments uh, with ongoing meth use. Uh, the individuals here are not individuals who are in treatment settings necessarily. This is a, a survey that was done uh, across the entire population. Kratom is a, a plant-based stimulant that has been noted to have some pain-relieving qualities, some opioid-like qualities. Uh, and so in small doses, it actually acts as a stimulant, but in higher doses, it acts as a depressant. So it's actually a fairly complex substance in that way. Uh, there are no restrictions on buying or selling Kratom. Uh, it is fairly easy to get online. Uh, you can buy it in typically a powdered form or a pill form. It's labeled as not for human consumption, which is one of the ways that people will get around selling things like Kratom or bath salts. They'll label it as not for human consumption. Um, it's one of the small tricks that they use. Uh, and, and again, you can buy it online. You can buy it in certain shops around LA. Uh, again, in smaller doses, it does provide a little bit of that stimulant effect. In higher doses, it produces um, a more pronounced opioid-like effect. Yeah, I see a comment in the chat. A former client couldn't get off Kratom after stopping meth. Yeah, uh, depressive symptoms, inactivity, as well as anxiety. Yeah, and it's interesting that you'll have people who will transition from a substance uh, like meth to kratom, uh, and then they'll have difficulty getting off of the kratom. Um, I think there's misinformation about it, particularly online, because of its accessibility, because of um, people swearing by it as as being better than meth or better than heroin. Is it potentially less risky? Maybe uh, solely from kind of a, a chemical standpoint, but it is still highly addictive. Uh, it does produce some. Uh, intoxication and withdrawal effects that are not desirable. I think it can potentially cause issues um, during withdrawal, none that are, are life-threatening, but are going to be incredibly uncomfortable. And, and again, if somebody has existing health conditions, that could potentially be a health risk as well. So it's, it's worth um, asking about some of these other substances. There may be people who don't see Kratom as a drug per se, that they may see it as something that's more like herbal, uh, or more natural. And so it may not come up in conversations if you're asking solely about drugs. Uh, so be a little bit inquisitive. You don't even necessarily have to ask if somebody is using Kratom, but use that assessment, that opportunity to uh, broadly try to conceptualize whatever it is that somebody might be taking, even if they identify it as, as their vitamins. <laughs> try to get a sense of what that is, because it's a very different, big difference between Kratom and vitamin C. Uh, but somebody may not necessarily conceptualize that if if they've been told when they're ordering that that you know this is this is organic and it's all natural and it will help you with a little bit of an energy boost. So keep that in mind. Good. Cat is in the the same family. K H A T is in kind of that same uh, family of plant-based stimulants, um, typically brewed in teas or just chewed. 
uh, produces a slight stimulant effect, not as pronounced as kratom. Um, but I don't really hear much of that in, in LA in particular. Good. What other questions do you have about any of these substances or uh, kind of the ranking of the stimulants here? And we'll get into the specifics around cocaine and methamphetamine in just a little bit. Spice. Uh, spice is a synthetic uh, cannabinoid. So it's, it's somewhat in that family of marijuana, but I'm hesitant to say that because I, I think it, it misrepresents what spice is. Um, it is in that family of cannabinoids to which marijuana belongs, um, but it, it's very, very different. It is a completely synthesized uh, chemical analog to something like THC, something like other cannabinoids. Uh, and because it is completely chemically synthesized, the effects are going to be much less predictable and significantly more pronounced. Um, so not technically a stimulant, more in that category of, of cannabinoids, but uh, analogous to, similar to, the uh, to bath salts, which are synthetic uh, synthetic cathinones, which are chemically analogous to amphetamines and methamphetamines. Uh, cathinone, methcathinone uh, are some of the, the chemical bases for bath salts. Again, the idea there is that you're, you're getting something that is completely chemically synthesized, which means it's going to be significantly more potent, uh, potentially, and the effect is going to be uh, much more exaggerated. So you'll, you'll hear about people on bath salts acting similar to being on something like methamphetamine, but it, it'll be almost like a, like a PCP type reaction where they're incredibly out of control, a little bit more prone to violence, uh, just bad news all around. Uh, but again, things like bath salts, things like spice can, you can, you can buy those online pretty easily. You can buy those in different shops around LA County pretty easily. Um, how many people use bath salts? Very good question. Too many is probably my quick answer, uh, but we, we really don't know. Uh, and the reason that we don't know is because it is incredibly difficult to test for those synthetics, uh, for things like spice and bath salts. The, the chemical compounds that are used are constantly being updated because the FDA and the DEA will say, well, you can't include this type of specific uh, cathinone in your product. You can't use this particular precursor or this particular chemical. So whoever's manufacturing that will just take one step back and they'll use a different type of precursor um, to get the same effect. Might be slightly a little bit, uh, slightly less predictable in that way, but it's also harder to track. And so most organizations, most agencies will not be testing for basalts. They won't be testing for spice. Um, they, because it's really expensive to do so, to get that specific test. And you have to know exactly what type of uh, synthetic you're looking for and have the right test to do that. So you're pretty much relying on self-report. Uh, you're relying upon uh, collateral information in like emergency department admissions or treatment admissions. Uh, and so we don't really have a, a strong sense of the prevalence of, of how many people are using. Luckily, it seems to be low, generally speaking, compared to some of these other substances, but it's, it's really hard to track in that way. It's a really good question. Also, a reason that people tend to use those substances is that they won't show up on, um, on urine screens, right, for things like probation, uh, because 
nobody's testing for that particular substance. Uh, so that's one of the reasons that people will tend to use spice uh, because it won't show up on those typical uh, drug tests. Usually self-report when staff explores. Yeah, uh, when people talk about spice, it, it's typically, <laughs> the ways that I've heard that come up is like somebody will hear about somebody else who was messing around with spice and they had a really bad reaction and nobody else wants to mess around with that. Or you'll hear every once in a while that there will be kind of a, a mass hospitalization on uh, places like Skid Row because somebody was distributing spice. Um, again, really hard to narrow down. And I think your best bet is, is as uh, Mihi was saying, do good assessment, build good rapport and ask those types of questions. That's good. Yeah, really good. Client was acting like using something. It took a long time to get to the answer on spice. Yeah, they may not call it spice. <laughs> again, when, when there was that, that issue on Skid Row, I think it was a couple of years ago, where 80 people were hospitalized because they were having adverse reactions to a substance. Nobody was like, oh, it's spice that was being handed out. It was just a substance that was being passed around. Uh, and it was after the fact that it was determined to be something similar to spice. Uh, so again, really hard to narrow down. Do your best to engage the client. Ask the kinds of questions that give you a sense of what they might be using. So they may not know exactly what it is. Where did they get it? How do they use it? What does it feel like when they use it? Will be some of those breadcrumbs that give you a sense of, of what the substance might be. But it, it's, it's kind of a crapshoot when you're, you're talking to people about what they're using. You have clients who are like, oh, yeah, I go to my same weed guy every single time that I go. But this last time I had a different experience uh, and it's because I got a different strain or I go to my, my same meth guy. But this last time it was laced with a little bit of fentanyl. I mean, th these kinds of issues people may not know exactly what they're taking as they're taking it. And that's so one of the major issues that we're going to be talking about when we're talking about the, the uh, manufacturing of these different substances. You may know what you, or you may think you know what you're getting, but in actuality, it may be something else entirely. So do your best to ask the client about what they're experiencing uh, and, and kind of what it does for them and be a little bit comfortable potentially not knowing exactly what they're using. That's a really good example yeah, of how hard this can be to narrow down. Thank you for that. If we're looking at uh, some of the trends in the past year use of cocaine from 2016 to 2019, what we have here is this, this is broken down by age range or age groups. So you have 12 to 17 year olds, 18 to 25 year olds, and then 26 or older. And this is a proportion of that age group. So while we're looking at the 18 to 25 year olds, the proportion of that age group is significantly higher than any other age group. But 26 or older, the, the kind of raw data will certainly be higher because that's a much larger age group than 18 to 25. But what we want to focus on is that generally speaking, these trends are stable. There isn't a ton of change in year to year prevalence of cocaine use in any of these age groups. Encouraging, I think that it's it's 0.1% uh, or lower for 12 to 17 year olds. Uh, but again, what we're focused on is that there isn't uh, there's a stabilization for the most part related to cocaine use. <coughs> Not the case with methamphetamine. A very different story with methamphetamine. Uh, if you look at the changes in the 12 to 17 year old age range not really any differences year to year. And so that is relatively stable. Again, 
I guess that's somewhat encouraging that there hasn't been any major shifts uh, in the upward direction. For 18 to 25 year olds, uh, yeah, there's that one spike in 2017, but that spike in and of itself wasn't a significant change in that age group uh, year to year. The biggest concern really is the 26 or older age group. You see that from um, between 2016 and 2017, compared to 2019, you have a significantly uh, you have a significant increase in past year use. Uh, in the 26 or older age group. And that trend is continuing to increase. So while it's relatively stable for 18 to 25 and 12 to 17, for 26 and older, unfortunately, what we're continuing to see is a trend in the upward direction. A little bit more encouraging, if we're looking at the past year misuse of prescription stimulants, you're seeing a significant decrease among younger adults. I think this is really encouraging because that's probably going to be the age group that you would be most focused on prescription stimulant misuse to begin with. Um, certainly, you would want to address that in the 12 to 17 age range, uh, but 18 to 25 is anecdotally generally where I tend to hear the most uh, prescription stimulant misuse. You're seeing this among older high school individuals. You're seeing it among college students or um, that kind of age group that people are misusing prescribed stimulants either for academic purposes or potentially even for recreational purposes. Once you get to the 26 or older age range, uh, not really all that significantly prevalent and certainly there are no significant year-to-year -year changes uh, between those years listed and 2019. If we look at the past year use, and this is uh, reported in the thousands, of stimulants by racial and ethnic group, uh, this is for 2019, we see that by and large, uh, white individuals comprise the, the most uh, use among all these racial ethnic groups of cocaine, crack, methamphetamine, and prescription stimulant misuse. Keep in mind that these are the, this is the raw data. So this is just looking at the total number of individuals in each of those groups uh, in the number of thousands uh, based on each type of stimulant. It changes slightly if we look at the data slightly differently. So rather than looking at the, the kind of overall totals, if we were to look at this as a proportion of, as a percentage, of each of these groups, we see a very different story. And so again, if we're looking at, I don't wanna look at the overall total because that doesn't necessarily tell me about the proportional impact or the disproportional impact of substances on a particular racial and ethnic group. Um, if I look instead at the percentages, I'm seeing not so much that, that uh, white individuals are going to be leading the way in each of these categories, but when you're looking at cocaine, uh, Native Hawaiian and uh, other Pacific Islander populations far outpace any of the other groups in terms of proportion uh, of that demographic group that have used in the past year. Similarly, if I look at, at crack, uh, the groups that are disproportionately impacted, uh, African-American and then again, Native Hawaiian, Hawaiian and uh, other Pacific Islander. For methamphetamine, uh, American Indian and Alaska Native, and then Native Hawaiian and other uh, Pacific Islander. And then if we look at prescription stimulant misuse, there you see that, that bar for white individuals outpacing the other groups. This is 
much more telling from a conceptual standpoint uh, of some of the, as I mentioned, some of the socioeconomics, uh, some of the uh, socio-political factors that go into substance use. This tells a little bit more of that story. Um, why is it the case that if we're looking at this graph, you see, okay, all of the lines there indicate that white individuals are using it significantly higher rates than any of the other racial or ethnic groups. If we then look at this, why would it be the case that prescription stimulant misuse is the one that's uh, where white individuals are represented the highest? What does that tell me? What can I get from that? That's exactly right. We're talking about access to healthcare, and we're talking about availability of medications. So not only is it the access to healthcare, but the frequency with which uh, prescription medications are dispensed to white individuals in particular, uh, disproportionately so. And so there have actually been attempted remedies at the federal level, things like Medicare Part D for older adults, to try to bring this particular health disparity more into balance. But you see that reflected in that particular graph. Uh, just as a reminder that these graphs don't tell the entire story, but even just looking at the data slightly differently, rather than a global overall total of the, the raw uh, number of people who are using in a particular group, if you're looking at a percentage of each of these groups, you have a much different story that takes into account um, other factors as well. That's good. Uh, and again, if you're working with uh, any American Indian, Alaska Native populations, uh, Native American populations, that is, it, it's particularly important to think about the disproportional impact of meth use issues, alcohol use issues, depression. Um, again, it's not just based on the fact that people are more vulnerable. There's, there's, significant trauma histories, there's historical traumas to consider. Uh, that's not necessarily incorporated in this graph, but to some extent, these graphs do reflect that, that conceptualization. And we, we do a lot of work, as I mentioned, out in the Pacific. And um, again, the, the challenge that we tend to see is that among Native Hawaiians and other Pacific Islanders, uh, you do see these, these really high rates of, of things like cocaine use and methamphetamine in particular. Um, if we look at past year use of methamphetamine by state, again, you see that general trend that if you're moving from the East Coast to the West Coast, you get a much different story as you're moving West. Now, that area of the country that is kind of that dark navy blue that, that um, is also an area of the country that is particularly hit by the opioid crisis, um, part of that, again, is socioeconomic, that you saw the proliferation of opioid issues occurring in that area of the country due to the industry that was available there. And then during the economic downturn at the end of the, the late 2000s, um, you saw changes in socioeconomic status that exacerbated existing uh, mental health and, and behavioral health issues. But as you move west, you see a proliferation of, of meth use. If we look at the co-occurrence between meth use and other uh, substance use issues, depression, serious mental illness. This goes back a little bit to, I think what Salvador was mentioning, if we're taking a look at alcohol, this is looking at the past year marijuana use issues among individuals who had no methamphetamine use compared to individuals with methamphetamine use issues in the past year. All of these graphs tell me that if somebody is using methamphetamine in the past year, they're going to be significantly more likely to have past year marijuana use, to have past year opioid misuse, 
to have past month heavy alcohol use, to have past year cocaine use, to have past year major depression, depression, uh, and to have past year severe mental illness compared to somebody who's not using methamphetamine. So I'm happy to entertain any other questions about this particular graph, but the takeaway here is that an individual who's using methamphetamine is going to be significantly more likely to have co-occurring either substance, co-occurring substance use issues or co-occurring mental health conditions compared to someone who is not using meth. Same thing here, if we take a look at cocaine use compared to, um, or cocaine use related to past year marijuana, past year opioid, alcohol, methamphetamine, uh, major depression, and then severe mental illness as well. We're seeing a trend uh, in terms of the burden on the U.S. hospital system. Uh, as we progress forward, again, those trends continue to increase. We're seeing higher rates of emergency department visits. Uh, we're seeing more and more people who are treated and released from emergency departments, uh, but we're seeing an increase in inpatient admissions as well. If we look at the primary substance of misuse at admission, the same trends are continuing. Alcohol is generally trending down. Uh, marijuana is generally trending down. Opiates saw a spike in the early 2010s, but has plateaued for the most part. Uh, unfortunately, methamphetamine continues to increase ever so slightly. Uh, cocaine is relatively stable. It has decreased and has plateaued to some extent as well. Um, methamphetamine is the one to keep an eye on because it continues to, to slightly tick up year after year. And this is just a different visualization of those treatment admissions from 2008 to 2018. You can see the shift in color uh, moving away from alcohol to things like heroin and stimulants um, between 2008 and 2018. I don't know how many of you are working with younger individuals, uh, but if we take a look at the rate of stimulant use among 8th, 10th, and 12th graders, in 2020, again, you're seeing that generally speaking, uh, 12th graders are going to be using at a, a much higher percentage than 8th or 10th graders. Um, that is a critical period to focus on use, that you're looking at that period of, of about 15 or 16 to 25 as being a, a really critical window to prevent the effects or the impacts of substance use issues. Uh, and so I, I would wanna focus on, if I'm working with adolescents, make sure that you're not just asking about things like alcohol and marijuana, even though those are most, uh, the most commonly used substances, make sure that you're asking about cocaine, crack, methamphetamine, uh, and, and other amphetamines as well that includes prescription medications that might be misused. We're also seeing increasing injection uh, of methamphetamine among non-MSM who inject drugs. So we'll break this down and we'll, we'll talk about this. This is looking at, MSM is men who have sex with men, so it's a designation uh, identifying a particular subgroup of individuals who may be at higher risk of things like HIV um, uh, or hepatitis. And so what we're noticing here is that the proportion of non-MSM individuals who are injecting drugs uh, are <laughs> reporting any recent injection of methamphetamine has significantly increased from 2009. Now, among men who have sex with men, it's remained relatively stable. 
but if you look at the non-MSM category, around 20% in 2009 to over 60% in 2017. The, this is, most of this uh, increase has been attributed in these studies to uh, the injection of methamphetamine combined with heroin. So what you're seeing here is a combination of kind of the opioid epidemic and the proliferation of methamphetamine coming to a head to some extent. Um, if you weren't aware, methamphetamine combined with heroin is called a goofball. Uh, I can never keep those combinations straight in my mind. I can never keep those terms straight in my mind. It's one of those areas where uh, I know the individual terms, but the com combined terms, I, I can never keep that in mind. Um, so individuals who are injecting combined methamphetamine and heroin tend to be, generally speaking, younger, homeless, or, or unstably housed, uh, and tend to report daily injection. They also tend to report a, a self-report uh, at least one opioid overdose within the past year. Uh, so again, the combination between methamphetamine and heroin, a lot worse than one or the other. Uh, certainly we want to focus on the risks associated with heroin as well, but you're seeing the, the combination is particularly detrimental. One of the other things that we, we recognize is that among individuals who are injecting, 43% of, uh, of the MSM population last reported last sharing equipment with a non-MSM person. So again, we're thinking about some of the, the disproportional impacts among an MSM population. This is a population that has a HIV prevalence of around 40%. And so part of the health concern may be around needle sharing. That it's not just that there's an increase in this trend line among non-MSM people, but that there's sharing between these groups that could potentially create additional health risks. Uh, so it may be worth, as you're talking about use, you're talking about route of administration, you want to assess who they're using with, uh, maybe thinking about getting other health screenings done, uh, regardless of um, whether somebody's in the MSM or the non-MSM category. If we look at methamphetamine and opioid co-ingestion, what you tend to see is you tend to see a synergistic effect of the meth and the opioid together. Oftentimes what you have is you have the stimulant effect counterbalancing the depressant of the opioid, which increases opioid or overdose risk uh, due to respiratory depression and the cardiac strain that's put on the system. The most potent effect seems to occur within the, the first 90 minutes or so of co-ingestion. So you'll, you'll typically get, and Again, it, it depends on how somebody does this, and it depends on their own kind of physiological response to these substances. But generally speaking, what people are doing is they're using these in combination to offset one effect or, or the other effect. Um, and so what you're typically seeing is that you'll use a depressant after a stimulant to, to try to regulate some of the agitation or the discomfort that comes along with that. Uh, or if somebody's using a, a depressant, then they'll counterbalance that with the stimulant to, to get a little bit more of that energy. Um, and so it really kind of depends on the effect that somebody is trying to achieve 
and the the proportions that they're using those substances in. That type of cycling can happen over the course of many weeks or many months. You'll hear people who will sometimes use opioids uh, for a period of time, and then they'll switch to a stimulant or they'll, sw they'll switch to meth for a period of time because something has changed for them. Maybe they need a little bit more energy. Sometimes this happens within hours. Sometimes it happens uh, concurrently. And so again, it, it really depends on, on how closely these are administered together. And then if they're administered simultaneously, I suppose it would depend on the potency of the substances that the individual is using, as well as their tolerance that they've built uh, to those substances. But generally speaking, the effect that you're getting is going to be more pronounced both on the meth side and the opioid side than if they were to use them separately. That was a really convoluted way of, of answering your question with, it depends. Uh, so let me know if, if you have additional questions around that. I, again, behaviorally, uh, so what I'm, if I understand it, you're kind of trying to understand what would it look like from the outside perspective of somebody who is using these simultaneously. Flight with Denzel Washington is a good representation. Yeah. Um, Denzel is fantastic in anything, but yeah, flight does go into kind of a representation of, of this, uh, this kind of cycling effect. I think in terms of what you would look for behaviorally is you would look at somebody who is experiencing some of the typical behavioral indicators of meth or opioid use, but to a greater degree. And I think that becomes really tricky in an individual assessment if we don't have a baseline for that person, right? If that makes sense. Um, that that I, I am looking for absent an understanding of what somebody looks like just on meth. And I'm talking, when I say somebody, I mean specifically the individual that I might be sitting across from. If I don't know what what they look like just on meth, if I don't know what they look like just on opioid, it may be really hard to tease that out in a, a session if I'm seeing them on those kind of synergistic effects. Uh, it, it, there may not be one thing that kind of jumps out specifically um, because of the tolerance that person has developed because uh, of the varying degrees of what they might be using that would tell me, oh, this person is absolutely using uh, a goofball or some combination of these substances. Um, you may hear somebody, I'm trying to think of questions that you might be able to ask, um, maybe about the effect of their last use, whether it was, um, yeah, kind of that open-ended question of, of how were you feeling after you used, uh, if somebody mentions that they, they felt like, um, they needed to get a little bit more, they felt like they, they weren't using enough. Um, that may not be necessarily indicative of the synergistic effect. People typically will report a little bit more of, of kind of an edge off of each of the substances. So they'll talk about the effect being a little bit more pleasant because of that simultaneous interaction. That might be one of the kind of open-ended questions that, that I would think about asking uh, to determine if somebody's using both of these. But you might want to be a little bit more direct. I think in, in terms of um, just gathering that information, especially during an initial assessment, just trying to determine from them what they understood that they took. 
Yeah, someone that couldn't stay awake, that, that might be the case. That also could be an effect of, of heroin. It could be an effect of an opioid, depending on what somebody's taken. Um, I've worked with individuals when they take a stimulant, they get really, really mellow. Uh, and, and again, that's kind of counterintuitive, but we also have to take into consideration that individual physiological impact of these substances. Uh, sometimes it doesn't go exactly as planned or it isn't as predictable as we, we might think it would be. It's good. Complex, right? Uh, and so just do your best. Get to know the individual. Know that that kind of assessment is an ongoing process. Uh, if we look at past month use of methamphetamine, uh, methamphetamine among people seeking treatment for an opioid use issue, you see that continuing to increase as well, which is concerning uh, that in 2011, you had about 19% of people, uh, 2017, about 34% of people. And that trend seems to be continuing. As I mentioned, most of the indicators seem to be that uh, people are continuing to use methamphetamine uh, in combination with opioids. One of the things that we encounter uh, depending on where we're working in LA is that you'll sometimes hear about like seasonal use. If somebody is working in agriculture, if they're working in farming um, or if they're working in the field, then they will typically switch depending on the season. Uh, they'll use meth during the harvesting season and they'll switch to opioids when it's the off season. Uh, and so you want to kind of get a sense of, of that pattern of use, whether it's the microcosm of combining when they're using in one particular episode or that longer term switching back and forth between substances. So what are some of the treatment implications? Um, make sure that you have sufficient naloxone kits available, if possible, or you know how to access that. Remember that naloxone is kind of that, that antidote to opioid overdose. Uh, because of the interaction effect, however, even though this, this effect is more pronounced, it also means that that naloxone may not be as effective as, as we might hope. Uh, so it might require more than one dose to counteract the effects of meth and heroin. Um, is anybody using naloxone? Is anybody approved to do so in your organizations. A couple different ways that you can do that. There's a nasal spray, there's a, a leg injection, there's a self-application injection. Uh, but again, this is a safety measure to immediately counteract the effects of opioid overdose. Combined methamphetamine and opioid ingestion may not respond to one dose. And so um, you all know this if you've done any work with naloxone, you never just like dose somebody and then send them on their way. There's always medical follow-up and, and this is one of those reasons in particular. Substance use counselors carry them, good. It's good to hear. Um, combined medication assisted treatment for heroin with contingency management for meth. And we'll talk about both of those. Uh, but we know that medication assisted treatment is particularly effective with heroin, looking at things like uh, naltrexone or extended release naltrexone, combining that with uh, contingency management as a behavioral intervention for meth is a, a good starting point for effective treatment. And then we'll talk a little bit about exercise in just a bit. Uh, a couple more slides, not to belabor the point. An emerging pattern of increased deaths involving stimulants. You see that line jumping substantially for synthetic opioids. That's the focus across the country right now is this opioid epidemic and how problematic it is. But I think we're, we're missing a little bit the conversation of methamphetamine continues to be and stimulants continue to be um, a problem among individuals who are using. So while fentanyl is kind of uh, has the spotlight right now, and rightfully so, given that substantial increase. Uh, the two lines that continue to increase outside of fentanyl are cocaine and methamphetamine. Heroin is plateauing and decreasing slightly. Prescription opioids are decreasing slightly. Um, and so I think we, we continue to have issues 
uh, in the realm of stimulants, uh, particularly when it comes to overdose issues. You're seeing a growing percentage of opioid-related deaths that also involve stimulants. So if we're looking at the grouping of opioid-related deaths that also include stimulants, uh, you're seeing from 2008 to 2018, substantial increase in any stimulant involvement. Um, cocaine seems to be a higher prevalence than methamphetamine. The flip side of this, if you look at stimulant-related deaths that also involve opioids, um, continues to increase as well. So um, make sure that you're assessing for both. Uh, make sure that you're focused on both as you're moving forward in treatment. Geographic differences exist. Again, you see that similar replication of differences on the East Coast compared to moving across the country and on the West Coast if you're looking at cocaine deaths versus methamphetamine deaths. Um, this is Cocaine in particular is, I think, what brought fentanyl to the forefront in terms of the opioid issue. Uh, it really got a lot of national attention because I, I think it was an issue in Ohio uh, or some of the, the states around Ohio where people were buying cocaine from dealers and they were using cocaine and they were overdosing and dying because it turned out that that cocaine was laced with fentanyl. Um, Again, cocaine overdoses is a particular concern in and of itself, but now we're encountering these challenges where, where people are uh, getting substances that are mixed together unbeknownst to them. Uh, let's talk about the differences between methamphetamine and cocaine. And so we're going to talk really quickly about these differences and then we'll get into the brain a little bit and then we'll start to move into to treatment conceptualization. If we're going to start with talking about cocaine, and so cocaine typically comes in a powdered form, hydrochloride salt. Uh, there is a smokable cocaine, which is typically called crack, rock, or freebase, and it has a half-life of one to two hours. Uh, the freebase form of cocaine is processed from powdered cocaine hydrochloride to a substance that can be smoked, and typically that's processed with Again, an additive substance, ammonia, sodium bicarbonate, which is um, baking soda, and then water. And then you heat that to remove the hydrochloride. Uh, you typically get a high within a very brief period of time with this particular substance. It's also really inexpensive, both to produce and to buy. So when we're, I know this came up earlier in the chat. One of the things that we want to be thinking about when we talk about crack is that it's a stimulant that's analogous to cocaine, uh, significantly cheaper version, both in terms of production and then selling. Uh, and it's, it's effective in terms of the high that it produces. Uh, it's typically smoked. Uh, and because of that route of administration, you're getting that high fairly immediately. Methamphetamine comes in a couple different forms. Uh, you get it in a powder form, a base or paste form, and then a crystalline form. That base or paste form is typically uh, processed once more to produce either the crystalline form or the, the powder form. Uh, but the, the powder looks like a beige, yellowy kind of off-white powder. The crystalline form will look like white, clear crystals or rocks. Uh, you'll sometimes hear it as, as like glass. Um, unless you're watching Breaking Bad, then it comes in a blue form. And what is a talk on stimulants without a reference to Breaking Bad at some point? Methamphetamine is referred to a number of different ways. Speed, crystal, ice um, are typically the most common slang terms. I, I, some of you have heard me say this before. I don't put a lot of 
stock in my ability to try to use the slang terms when I'm talking to someone, uh, because what I understand the slang is has probably changed even from the time that I started this conversation. And so there's no way that I can kind of keep up with that. Ask your clients about it. If they bring up a term that you don't know about, just be transparent about that and, and see if you can fit it within your conceptualization, your understanding of these different types of substances. Uh, amphetamines and then pharmaceutical products used for ADD or ADHD treatment, uh, which we'll talk about in just a second. Methamphetamine has a slightly different half-life than cocaine. Uh, so methamphetamine takes eight to, it has a half-life of eight to 10 hours, meaning that 50% of the drug is removed from the body within that period of time. There are different ways that methamphetamine is used, and depending on how it's used, it produces a slightly different effect. Uh, usually it's used via by smoking or injecting, which causes a really immediate and intense rush, that kind of immediate feeling of euphoria. Uh, snorting or oral ingestion also produces euphoria that high, but it doesn't come with that same intense rush. Uh, snorting will produce an effect that takes a little bit longer, three to five minutes, and then oral ingestion will take 15 to 20 minutes. So smoking or injecting is going to produce that, that more immediate experience, which is why that's often the, the route of administration that people will choose for this particular substance. Um, it's often used in a binge and crash pattern where people will go on these runs where they forego sleep or food or even kind of basic needs. Uh, and they'll take that drug for up to several days, just subsisting on the substance um, as they, they continue that run. Prescription stimulants will often be used for the treatment of things like ADHD. Uh, it seems kind of counterintuitive that you would be prescribing a stimulant to somebody with a hyperactivity disorder. Uh, and we actually don't know what the specific, neuro specific neurological mechanism is that makes this effective. Uh, but stimulants actually enhance alertness and concentration. Uh, the challenge here is to be cognizant of diversion in situations where people may be using these prescriptions for non-medical reasons or um, individuals may be using it without a, a doctor's guidance. Again, I hear this in among high schoolers. I hear it among younger individuals to some extent, either for academic purposes that they'll use these medications to, to try to study before an exam or they'll use it before they go out for the evening as a little bit of a, a boost. Um, the research around using these types of, of stimulants for learning is, indicates that it's not really all that effective for somebody who doesn't have an ADHD um, diagnosis, that, that oftentimes it will enhance an ability for kind of immediate recall uh, or retention of information in the short term, but it's not useful for ongoing learning. Uh, you also see amphetamines used to increase wakefulness in situations where maybe something like coffee just won't cut it. Uh, in the military for pilots, uh, I hear more and more about amphetamine use among nurses, in particular, especially now given the challenges with COVID, uh, lawyers and teachers also. So yeah, I don't know that there's any one particular field or profession that it's contained to. I think if somebody has to stay alert, wakeful and potentially energized to an extent that this would be a potential consideration to, to meet the demands of, uh, of their profession. Yeah. 
Methamphetamine has typically been manufactured using three different processes. Uh, the first one is ephedrine, pseudoephedrine. So that's kind of that over-the-counter or what used to be over-the-counter uh, allergy medication or um, that you would get at the pharmacy. Now it's no longer uh, it's no longer available. It's locked away. You you can't access it without producing your uh, your license. This is one of the reasons as to why um, this was this method was slightly revolutionary in that it cut out a number of the steps that were typically involved in the, the kind of P2P method that we'll talk about in a second. Um, it was a, a dry, it was a cooking using mostly dry ingredients rather than liquid anhydrous ammonia. Um, the chemical process to cook methamphetamine is, is chemically fairly complicated. Um, from what I understand, if a, a DEA agents are, are taken through classes where they're taught how to make meth and they will sometimes uh, do that as part of their training to understand the process, they don't do that for us. So I don't know the chemical ins and outs of, of uh, cooking meth all that specifically, uh, but it does typically start with using ephedrine or pseudoephedrine, grinding it up, adding something like a, a methyl alcohol, which would be like a windshield wiper fluid. Um, and then again, filtering that through something like a coffee filter and adding additional chemicals, um, sodium metal or, or I think lithium to uh, further extract the, what will the end result being methamphetamine. Um, this is also a really volatile process. This particular method, this Nazi method, as it's colloquial, colloquially called, reduced the volatility of meth production. Uh, and so this became a really popular mechanism across the country in the early, I think, late 1990s, early 2000s of producing methamphetamine at home. Um, what we're seeing now is more of a... a synthetic method combined with these large-scale laboratories involving expert chemists to produce better products. And so this P2P phenylacetone process is currently illegal in the United States. Uh, and so you're seeing a lot of the production coming from Mexico, again, with expert chemists cooked in large laboratories with professional lab equipment. The method that's emerging now is looking at uh, using a P2P precursor and phenylacetic acid. Uh, nitrostyrene is what's being identified as that new synthetic method. And what we'll see in a few slides is that this produces a product that is uh, more pure and more potent than it ever has been in the past. So this uh, quick rundown of what happened with these different processes. Before 1970, you could purchase amphetamines over the counter. Um, in the 1970s and 1980s, meth was used making that P2P uh, phenyl propanon method. Bikers actually carried that product in their crankcases, which is why you, you will sometimes hear this referred to as crank, uh, again, kind of colloquially. In the 1980s, P2P was, uh, became a Schedule II process, uh, which made it illegal but it was still legal in Mexico. And so uh, those processes shifted uh, to some extent to uh, production in Mexico. You then saw meth in the U.S. being made uh, from pseudoephedrine. Pseudoephedrine was regulated in 2005, meaning it was no longer available. You can just walk into any 
uh, drugstore and, and buy packs and packs of pseudoephedrine. That would raise some eyebrows now, and there are checks in place to prevent that. Uh, and so this saw a shift uh, away from pseudoephedrine to P2P as the precursor. And then in 2014, you started to see the rise of the nitrostyrene as a precursor. All this is to note that this is an evolving process. This has been going on for decades. Chemists are getting better and better at producing this kind of product. And when one avenue closes, people will get creative and another one will pop up. <clears throat> uh, in 2005, that Combat Methamphetamine Epidemic Act was released, which put pseudoephedrine behind the counter. Uh, some meth makers tried to still shop around and, and procure enough pseudoephedrine to produce their product, uh, but you still saw meth cases plummet. There wasn't as common a report of hearing meth lab explosions or, or drug seizures uh, because of the lack of availability of this particular product, meaning that there was an availability, there was a continued need. Uh, there was a continued demand for this product, but there wasn't as much supply. And so Mexican drug cartels stepped in using this new P2P method uh, with much higher potency and a significantly lower price. You see this over time that from 2006 to 2018, pseudoephedrine production routes have dropped significantly with some of that legislation. Uh, P2P has, has increased uh, which has led to an increase in both potency and purity as well. So the rundown here of cocaine versus methamphetamine, they're both stimulants. Uh, cocaine does have local anesthetic properties, and so there is some medical use for cocaine uh, in certain settings, not all that frequently or not all that typically. Uh, methamphetamine is man-made, whereas cocaine is plant-derived. You'll typically smoke these to produce uh, that initial high, and then the half-life is very different. 50% of the drug is removed in 8 to 12 hours for methamphetamine versus one hour for cocaine. Uh, we'll talk about dopamine in just a second. The people who use meth generally will take the drug at the beginning of the day, generally speaking, and then continue to dose at two to four hour intervals. People who take cocaine typically do that in the evening. It's more of kind of a, a party drug, and it's not something that people will usually do during the day. And again, a lot of caveats there, generally, usually. So this might be something that you would assess for, uh, but by no means does the time frame 100% uh, guarantee what somebody is using. Um, but you'll typically see those patterns be slightly different between uh, methamphetamine and cocaine use. More about the similarities and differences between meth and prescribed stimulants. Yeah, uh, good question. So chemically speaking, methamphetamines and amphetamines are related, but they are very different. The chemical process that amphetamines have to undergo in order to become methamphetamine changes them substantially, meaning they have a much different effect neurochemically than amphetamines do. The process is generally the same. Uh, we'll talk about how it's related to dopamine. Uh, but if somebody is using something like Ritalin, something like Adderall, uh, an amphetamine that's a prescribed medication, it's not going to have the same exact neurochemical detriment that methamphetamine is going to produce. So it's still classified as a stimulant, but the exact neurochemical mechanism, uh, the way in which it affects things like dopamine and those receptor sites will be different. And so people can take those prescribed stimulants 
as prescribed with doctor oversight and not experience kind of that same neurological impact that somebody who's taking methamphetamine would. Uh, methamphetamine can also contain uh, certain adulterants. It, it's Again, the purity might be a little bit lower. And if you're putting that into your body, that can affect your physiological functioning in different ways. Uh, with prescribed stimulants, there's a standardized process that those medications have to go through in order to be um, distributed to the public. So I, I generally think about it as your amphetamines, particularly prescribed stimulants, produce a stimulant effect methamphetamine is going to take that and kind of break whatever constraints are on that particular stimulant and produce a much more, much more uh, uh, pronounced effect. And I'll talk a little bit about the kind of the neurochemical piece in the upcoming slides. Good question. So if you have somebody who's prescribed stimulants for ADHD, no, it's not like they're taking meth to manage their ADHD. Uh, does it impact the dopaminergic system? Sure, but not to the extent that methamphetamine would. Is it possible to become dependent on those uh, in the sense of developing a substance use issue? Absolutely. And, and again, when we think about the prescription stimulants, uh, there is that potential for misuse. There is that potential for um, diversion in that way. Good question. All right, so let's talk about the brain. Um, some of you may have heard this a little bit before in some of the other talks. I know we talked about this in the co-occurring disorder uh, session. We talked about this in the SUD session. We're gonna go over it uh, again, and so you'll hear it one more time, but I wanna add some pieces into it, focusing specifically on stimulants. And so when we think about addiction, we think about it as a chronic relapsing disease of the brain. That's really where the research is, is pointing at this point in time, that it's a chronic relapsing disease of the brain that affects reward, memory, attention, motivation, and related circuitry. There's this idea that, that fundamentally there's a neurochemical component to addiction, and we see the way that that translates into behaviors, the way that it translates into, into motivation, into judgment, into decision-making. And so it's fundamentally a neurological disease, but it's not only a neurological disease. So I want to keep that in mind as we're going through this, that it is fundamentally, from a conceptual standpoint, we can understand addiction as a brain disease, but it's not just a brain disease. This is just one more component of, of uh, like we talked about with those slides at the beginning, the data that we had from the graphs. Um, it's Good to have this information. It's potentially a useful orientation point for clients. It doesn't tell the entire story of somebody's functioning. Uh, so a quick primer on the brain. Uh, the, the primary information processors, those are what the neurons are. They communicate by sending electrical impulses uh, down axons to dendrites. The rate of firing on average is about 150 miles per hour. And so communication happens very, very quickly between these different neurons. The way these neurons communicate is by releasing neurotransmitters uh, or neurochemicals. These neurotransmitters fit specifically into receptor sites that are then recycled. There's a reuptake process that happens with the transmitting neuron uh, to be reused again. And so this is the typical process of what happens in your brain. Uh, some major neurotransmitters 
that we'll talk about. Uh, we'll talk about some of the excitatory and inhibitory neurotransmitters. We're going to focus mainly on the reward center of the brain, and we'll look a little bit at the, the judgment and decision-making, the prefrontal cortex portion of the brain. But generally speaking, we're looking at excitatory neurotransmitters, those neurotransmitters that move an individual toward a state of excitement or arousal, and inhibitory neurotransmitters, those that move a body toward a state of relaxation. Serotonin plays a role in mood function, sleep, dreams. Uh, we have an inkling that that's how LSD functions, is by acting on serotonin. Uh, it is increased slightly by the use of cocaine and amphetamines. Um, dopamine is the main neurotransmitter that we tend to talk about. It's implicated not only in, in pleasure, but also to some extent motivation and reinforcement of certain activities or behaviors. Norepinephrine is, increases heart rate, uh, blood pressure and sweating. It dilates pupils and constricts blood vessels. GABA is going to slow everything down. So gamma aminobutyric acid is, it actually inhibits cells from firing. Uh, and so when you're thinking about depressants, things like alcohol, barbiturates, or benzos, uh, those act on those GABA receptors specifically. Acetylcholine is present throughout the nervous system. Uh, it, there's some in every neuron. Uh, nicotine seems to work through that particular neurotransmitter. And then endorphins are also related to a number of different substances, particularly opioids. Uh, it's the body's natural painkillers, endogenous opioids. Um, some of you may have remembered this from a past talk that the original name was endogenous morphines, and they shortened that to endorphins, and so that's, that's where that name comes from. But let's take a look at what happens with normal dopamine functioning. Again, many of you may have seen this video before. Uh, this goes through what happens in that communication process between one neuron and another uh, related to feelings of pleasure. Our brains are finely tuned machines. Inside, cells called neurons are constantly communicating to shape how we think, feel, and act. Let's eavesdrop on their conversation. These are the ends of two neurons. The one on the right sends a message, and the one on the left receives it. At first, they look connected, but they are actually separated by a tiny space called a synapse, where messages are relayed. What we'll see next is how we normally experience pleasure. The sending neuron contains dopamine, the brain's pleasure chemical. When something good happens to us, this feel-good chemical is released into the synapse where it connects with receptors. There, dopamine activates the receiving neuron, which in turn conveys the message onto the next neuron, creating a chain reaction that produces pleasure. After the message is sent, Dopamine is recycled by transporters to be reused. This conversation repeating itself again and again gives us the feeling of pleasure. So that's the normal dopamine transmission process. And as you, you may have recalled from previous presentations or you may have seen this data before, we can look at changes in that dopamine production in those dopamine levels uh, when natural rewards occur. So in this particular study, this is measuring dopamine output in a rat subject 
Uh, on the left there, you have the rat in the box, food is administered, and you see the spike in dopamine. On the other box, uh, another rat is put into that box, and during sex, dopamine spikes up as well. Uh, so you see the, the relationship between dopamine and activities that are pleasurable. There's a reinforcing component. If it feels good, you're more likely to do it again. Uh, that's important when we start to think about the role of dopamine in the use of some of these stimulants that we've talked about. So what happens when there's cocaine thrown into this mix uh, in the dopaminergic system? Let's take a look. When someone first uses cocaine, the drug quickly enters the brain where it blocks the transporters on the presynaptic cell. Since dopamine cannot re-enter the presynaptic cell, it begins to accumulate in the synapse, where it can reach abnormally high levels and remain there much longer than usual. The postsynaptic cell becomes hyperactivated, which produces a feeling of euphoria. This creates an incredibly powerful association between cocaine and pleasure making a person want to repeat the experience of taking the drug. So that's the way that cocaine impacts that dopaminergic process, that communication. It causes that dopamine to stay in that synapse for a little bit longer than it normally would. It inhibits that reuptake process. Uh, something similar happens with meth. And so we'll take a look at this video really quickly, uh, and you'll see a similar process occurring when methamphetamine is used. How does meth change our brain? When we use meth, it enters the bloodstream and travels to the reward center of the brain where it invades the sending neuron. Meth causes dopamine to unnaturally leak into the neuron, then spill into the synapse. Making matters worse, meth blocks the transporters, which recycle dopamine back into the sending neurons. This keeps levels abnormally high, overstimulating our brains. We feel a powerful wave of pleasure. The rush can last 8 to 12 hours from just one dose. So slightly different there. Um, the, the way that I've heard this described, and this is... Um, if you think about the faucet in your bathroom, uh, using cocaine would be, or a normal dopamine process would be like if that faucet was on ever so slightly and it was draining normally into the sink. Using cocaine would be like if that faucet was draining normally, but the stopper was pulled and so that the water would start to accumulate in, uh, in the sink. Methamphetamine would be like turning the faucet all the way on. So that there's that, that rush of dopamine that's slightly different than cocaine. The reuptake is blocked in a similar process, but it's really the, the pushing out of the dopamine that's different between methamphetamine and cocaine. You see this change in, in dopamine release uh, across different substances, but we're going to focus on cocaine and methamphetamine. In particular, look at the graph for cocaine, look at the change in scale from zero to 250 to zero to 400, and then the mechanism of action, how long that, that spike uh, lasts from the time of administration of cocaine. And then if we look at methamphetamine, again, note the change in the scale from zero to 400 to zero to 1500. This is an indicator that you are not going to get anything naturally 
on this planet that's going to produce that same level of pleasure. I think this is worth understanding, again, from a neurochemical standpoint, to really help clients if they're, uh, if they're open to hearing this, if they're interested in this type of information, to really understand the impact of methamphetamine. Why do people keep going back to it? Why, can they, why do they have such a hard time moving away from the use of methamphetamine? Well, you can see it here. There's nothing on this planet that's going to produce that same level of, of pleasure, that same feeling of pleasure that methamphetamine does. And so it's no wonder that people continue to go back to this substance, that they're getting this really, really uh, unnatural and desirable experience that's reinforced by continued use of the substance. Uh, it's one of the reasons that I, I tend to say when somebody is coming into treatment early on, it's not enough just to say, hey, do some deep breathing and, and maybe just uh, think positively about things. None of that is sufficiently powerful enough to manage what's missing in their life now. And so we have to take a little bit more of, of a, a concerted approach of noting it's going to get a little bit worse before it gets better. And it's not going to feel great. And no, just doing some different coping skills is not going to sufficiently replace this thing that you are doing. But it's about moving towards better functioning because methamphetamine doesn't just produce a, a ridiculously high amount of pleasure. When you have dopamine leaking into the synapse and staying in the synapse, for an inordinate amount of time without that typical reuptake process, it actually becomes slightly neurotoxic, meaning it starts to damage those receptor sites, impacting functioning in a more profound way going forward. You see this in scans of individuals who have used meth uh, over a period of time compared to normal controls on the left there. You see that healthy brain activity, the reds, the oranges, there isn't as much of that in the dopaminergic system among meth users. It actually looks not unlike individuals with Parkinson's disease. We know that dopamine is, is uh, highly implicated in, the, uh, in Parkinson's disease and the uh, behavioral and motor impairments that come along with Parkinson's disease. There have been follow-up studies that have tried to draw this connection a little bit more specifically. Previously, it was speculated that if somebody used any sort of uh, stimulants, particularly methamphetamine, but potentially cocaine, that they would be at greater risk of developing Parkinson's later on in life. A 2011 study looking at 300,000 hospital records spanning 16 years found that methamphetamine use disorder patients were 75% more likely to develop Parkinson's disease. A follow-up study in Utah in 2015 found that anyone who used methamphetamine was 300% more likely to develop Parkinson's disease compared not only to people who didn't use, but also those who used cocaine. So going back to uh, the question, um, that question of the difference between stimulants, broadly classified the same, but they have very different neurological impacts. Is meth psychosis due to brain chemistry changes and rapid increased percentage of basal release? Uh, it is due to the brain chemistry changes. So remember that when you have dopamine hanging out in that synapse and you get that slightly neurotoxic effect of the dopamine, you're going to get disruptions in those neural connections that are typically formed. When you have those disruptions in neural connections, you start to see cognitive impairments occurring. Now, what happens over the course of, of a person's recovery, should they move towards that, is we hope with treatment, with substantial support, those connections will start to reform. 
the brain is neuroplastic and it can regain some of that, that functioning that may have been disrupted. The difficulty with mess is that those connections may not reform in the same way. So you may not have a perfect one-to-one -one match of those neural connections as they previously were. And what that leads to is it leads to things like ongoing experiences of psychosis, ongoing experiences of like transient hallucinations, ongoing depression or irritability or changes in cognitive functioning that persist far after the person has discontinued their use. We'll talk a little bit more about meth psychosis as a symptom of intoxication and withdrawal, but we'll also consider the way in which that's it's kind of an ongoing process that people may experience as a result of some of these neurochemical changes, uh, particularly detrimental. Right? If, if there weren't these, these difficulties, if it wasn't neurotoxic, I think everybody would be on meth, but there is a really substantial drawback from a health standpoint, uh, behavioral health standpoint, mental health standpoint, um, we see this in treatment. We see this in individuals who are using that uh, related to brain chemistry changes, as Ren is mentioning it. Uh, you see this this change in uh, dopamine receptor availability again. The the damage that occurs in that receptor in those receptors in that in that particular uh, region of the brain. Uh, the comparison subject there again. The the control one month after cocaine use versus four month after four months after cocaine use. Uh, the lowering or the reduction in dopamine receptors may contribute to the loss of control in cocaine users. There is an exchange that is noted, particularly among stimulant use, in which you have overactivation of the amygdala, emotional processing and regulation, and inhibition of the prefrontal cortex, judgment, decision-making, impulse control. And so this exchange that happens may lead to, again, this loss of control, this impulsive action taking without kind of the checks and balances of the prefrontal cortex. The good news is everything that you do in treatment, if you adhere to, to some of the kind of standards that we're going to be talking about, is designed to enhance prefrontal cortex functioning. That's going to be the best way of kind of managing this neurological impact. We don't have any pills or lasers or anything that can go in and reorient these structures at this point in time, but we know that treatment works, not only because we can see the outcomes, but we know from a neurological standpoint, it aims to regrow those receptor or those connections that are, are inhibited or, or disconnected during this process of stimulant use. So the immediate acute physical effects of stimulant use, um, it increases heart rate, blood pressure, pupil size, respiration, sensory acuity, and energy. Uh, it decreases appetite, sleep, and reaction time. Uh, so again, if somebody seems abnormally energetic, not like a couple coffee, cups of coffee energetic, but abnormally energetic, uh, that might be an indicator of the presence of a, a stimulant. Uh, again, always do your diligence in assessing, always ask questions that, that aim to understand a person's functioning rather than trying to put them in a box. But uh, it's, it's worth noting that these are generally the noted physical effects that you'll see. Some of the psychological effects, you'll have an increase in confidence, mood and euphoria, sex drive, energy, talkativeness. Uh, things that decrease are boredom, loneliness, timidity, timidity uh, things that are undesirable that if somebody is looking at being a little bit more confident, if they're looking at trying to, to manage uh, feelings of depression or potentially even traumatic experiences, this might be a way of self-medicating. Over time, you'll start to see physical effects uh, like tremor, weakness, dry mouth, weight loss, cough, 
sinus infections, dental problems, uh, headaches, diarrhea, anorexia, oily skin or complexion, uh, sweating, burned lips or sore nose, the psychological effects that can persist. Uh, again, we talked a little bit about the, the hallucinations, potentially some confusion or psychosis, memory loss, fatigue, insomnia, panic reactions or paranoia, and then depression and irritability are some of the ones that we tend to see most frequently. Acute stimulant overdose, severe hyperthermia, which means that the, the body temperature is unable to be regulated. You see convulsions, severe dehydration. That's one of the main concerns with something like MDMA or ecstasy. Uh, anxiety, panic, paranoia, delirium, uh, rhabdomyolysis, which is acute renal failure and can be uh, problematic from a health standpoint. Stroke and then myocardial infarction uh, or heart attack. Could these effects look different for someone who's pregnant or recently delivered a child? Uh, potentially, potentially. There, there's, we'll talk about the effects on uh, pregnant mothers in a second. But I, I think just from a, a neurochemical standpoint, the, the proliferation, the release of hormones that comes prior to childbirth and right after can certainly affect this, this kind of standardized uh, expected set of, of uh, symptoms that we might notice. Uh, it makes it a little bit more unpredictable as well, potentially. And, and Pearl, I don't know if you have any additional context for that and example that you might want to provide, but I, I would imagine just thinking about the physiological changes that come along with childbirth um, could make the, the use and the result of, of stimulant use uh, a little bit more unpredictable. It's a good question. Very good question. A little bit outside my scope of practice, but um, I think you're, you're on to something that it, it may look different um, depending on some of those other circumstances. We want to be cognizant of the potential for organ damage with chronic use. Uh, so respiratory issues, uh, neurological issues. Uh, we talked about the renal failure, uh, hepatic failure, which also results from that rhabdomyolysis, uh, and then cardiac issues are the main concern. Uh, oftentimes, the, the kind of immediate and uh, catastrophic health risks are, are based on cardiac issues, either exacerbating an underlying cardiac issue or inducing some sort of uh, cardiac event. Uh, psychosis and, and then affective changes can also result. We're seeing more and more methamphetamine-associated heart failure. Uh, some of this might be proliferation of use. Some of this might be, the, again, the, the potency and the purity of the product that's being produced. And it doesn't stop there. Uh, eye ulcers, overheating, obstetric complications, anorexia or weight loss, tooth wear, cavities, and then speed bumps. Uh, skin problems tend to be a major concern. For people when they come into treatment, sometimes it is a motivating factor to discontinue use. Uh, skin begins to take on a grayish or leathery texture. Uh, there's increased sweating, uh, hyperhidrosis, uh, and then skin picking. And so you sometimes see people with a number of scabs covering their arms, their legs, their body. This results from um, what's known as speed bumps or formication. This idea of, of skin picking um, that comes from the feeling of uh, something 
under your skin. So and people will often describe it as like uh, feeling insects crawling under your skin or on your skin, or like there's electricity pulsing through your skin and, and people will pick at that leading to, uh, again, impacts on, on uh, their skin health. Meth mouth is also, again, the, the colloquial term for severe tooth decay. Um, methamphetamine leads to tooth decay, not simply because it's methamphetamine. So it's not the chemical makeup of meth itself, but a number of factors, one of which is that methamphetamine constricts blood vessels. So the vasoconstriction component of methamphetamine leads to reduced blood flow to the gums, which can, uh, over time, reduce dental hygiene. The other thing that happens is when people are using methamphetamine, they tend not to focus on their dental hygiene as much. It's not something that's going to be as important. So you have uh, tooth decay that's happening. Teeth will become brittle as a result of the reduced blood flow. You'll have reduced dental hygiene because it's not a priority. And then the other thing that happens is uh, bruxism, which is the fancy term for teeth grinding. People will clench their draw jaws and they'll grind their teeth together as a side effect of stimulant use, particularly methamphetamine. These three items combined tend to lead to uh, pretty significant tooth decay. And again, between this and the, the skin hygiene, oftentimes that's reported as a somewhat motivating factor to be in treatment that people will notice that uh, they, they no longer have the appearance that they did previously uh, and that there's a sense of loss to the substance as a result of that. Um, <clears throat> sometimes not enough to, to discontinue use, but it, it is a component that uh, maybe somewhat motivating. During pregnancy, you see that it, it can result in maternal migraines and seizures. Uh, it can induce labor early and uh, result in membrane rupture. Um, high blood pressure, seizures, spontaneous miscarriage, preterm labor, and difficult delivery have been associated with um, stimulant use during pregnancy. Maternal use of methamphetamine is associated with cardiac and brain abnormalities once the child is delivered, uh, including neurological problems related to decreased arousal, increased stress, and attention impairments, all of which increase the potential for um, a diagnosis of a behavioral health or mental health issue and increases the potential risk of, of adopting substance use issues later on in life. If you're interested in learning a little bit more about that, we have a resource noted there that goes through child welfare issues in combination with stimulant use. And so if you work with younger individuals or you're working with caregivers who have children, um, I would encourage you to take a look at that particular product. Uh, it gives you a little bit more information on uh, navigating the child welfare issues, incorporating that system in a conversation about stimulant use. All right. Quick note about cognitive and memory effects. So we talked about how this changes the structure of the brain. We actually see that people have decreased motor activity. They have decreased memory. Uh, we see impacts on cognitive functioning across nearly every neuropsychological domain in meth-using groups compared to non-meth-using groups. 
The only one that seems to come up generally is that working memory tends to be about even or potentially a little bit better among stimulant using groups, which makes sense because with that increase in energy, you might be able to, to have the capacity for a little bit more immediate attention, uh, but that's not going to be long lasting and it isn't really all that functional. Um, Take this information with a, a bit of a grain of salt as well. Uh, again, there's a little bit of a discrepancy in some of the research uh, in that for individuals who are using meth, they have found that there are cognitive impairments, but they haven't found that those cognitive impairments are outside of the range of what would be clinically expected for cognitive functioning. Again, generally speaking, there's a lot more research that needs to be done. Uh, and what we really need to focus on is, is different individual factors that lead to vulnerability for things like methamphetamine-associated neurotoxicity, uh, not just looking at the substance itself, but environmental factors, developmental factors, genetic factors, um, socio-ecological factors, all of that has to be taken into consideration. Uh, but generally speaking, we do know that cognitive impairment is associated with meth use. Uh, broadly speaking, those cognitive impairments are not sought outside of normal ranges. Uh, that may vary person to person, however. And then we had uh, the conversation about psychosis. Uh, methamphetamine and psychosis, there is a strong association between methamphetamine and uh, the occurrence of psychotic symptoms, even when you control for a history of schizophrenia or other psychotic disorders. Uh, we still see that, and again, the data here is based in 2014, meaning we're using DSM-4 terminology. Um, Meth-dependent subjects were three times more likely to have psychosis compared to non-dependent subjects. Uh, 24 to 46% of meth-dependent patients uh, report methamphetamine psychosis, and the time from first use to psychosis is a little bit quicker for smokers versus injectors. Um, is that a factor of the route of administration or uh, individuals with some uh, underlying vulnerability being drawn to smoking versus injecting? Uh, again, it, it depends, but the research seems to indicate at this point that there is a difference in terms of route of administration and association with uh, methamphetamine psychosis. If you're talking about kind of the acute effect, is meth psychosis due to brain chemistry changes uh, with kind of the immediate release of, of basal dopamine? The research seems to indicate that it, it's something that takes some time to occur, that it's not going to happen right away. It might be a component of a person's individual intoxication experience, depending on the substance and their own physiological makeup. Um, again, there may be some implication for serotonin in that. Uh, but what the research is really indicating is that the, the meth-induced psychosis tends to occur following more chronic use, which, again, probably has something to do with not necessarily the, the immediate release of dopamine, but the ongoing brain chemistry changes. Will every single client benefit from a conversation about understanding the brain and understanding the, the risk factors? Not necessarily, but I, I would want my client to to feel equipped to potentially advocate for themselves and to know what it is that we're, we're focused on, why we're focused on this, why we recommend the treatment that we recommend, knowing what the impact is neurologically, and that there is the potential for healing, that healing is possible. Uh, and that's the good news in all of this, 
is that healing is possible. We'll take a look at a quick video of this. I was uh, for a year clean, and then all of a sudden, I just found myself back on a, a methamphetamine. I didn't run away from the problem. You know, I, I stayed in the program. I paid the consequences of my relapse and all that. But um, I don't want to give up the search for this recovery thing. Every single time you went back, you got more time. So that means that all the while that you were relapsing and probably thinking that you were failing, and I'm not recommending that relapse as a technique to get better, you were getting better and you were learning more each time. I felt that after that relapse, something had changed, that um, I was becoming a new person, you know, that I was starting to feel ashamed of my behavior and that, and that I could do something to change it. As hard as it is to get through this wall stage, it's a good sign because it means that you're on track. It actually means that your brain is healing. When we start using, we don't understand the consequences. We want to feel good, gain energy, lose weight. Before we know it, damage has been done. The good news is that if we stop using, our brains heal and life begins to feel good again. Here at the cellular level, damaged receptors and transporters regrow over a six to 12 month period. These scans actually show the healing process. The red areas show our brain regenerating over time. Our transporters are working again, our dopamine levels are rising, and life's possibilities return. I wasn't ready before, but now, I want it. I want it so bad. I crave my recovery. My outlook on recovery is that anything is possible. Simple things give me immeasurable pleasure now, and I don't want to ever lose that. Last night when I felt like using, and then I woke up this morning and I was still clean. That gives me a lot of hope. I've been able to stay clean for over a year and a half. I'm not just, uh, existing in life i'm living i have to be vigilant forever but i'm confident that that switch won't ever be turned on again i'm able to sit down and teach my daughter her abcs it's called patience and i didn't have it before and i have it today i set goals and today i accomplished them it was really important to realize that that i had something to offer that all the things that i've been through all the experiences, all the addiction, everything that I went through was for a reason and a purpose. And it was so that I could be who I am today. Because I look in the mirror today and I think, you rock. You know, I'm really happy with who I am today. And so I wouldn't trade that for anything. So again, I think that video highlights that that recovery is possible, but it, it takes work and it takes time and it doesn't happen right away. And because it doesn't happen right away, because it does take work, because it does take time, there's that period that exists that increases the potential for relapse. And I think we have to to help our clients 
if they're motivated to move towards recovery, know that there will be a period of time that will be a little bit more difficult before it starts to get better, that these, these changes don't happen right away. Um, all of the videos that we've watched today are posted on our Vimeo channel, and we will make those available to all of you. If you want to use them with clients, if you want to use them uh, for uh, education in your organizations, you are welcome to, to use those. Uh, I think that one is particularly nice to use with clients, even though it, it feels like, oh, everything turns out great. I think it's still nice to have a conversation about recovery and that, that hope piece. Um, and so we'll, we'll make those available and we'll hand out some resources to you as well. A couple different recommended treatments. Um, I'm going to go through some of these a little bit more quickly than others. Uh, medications we're going to go through fairly quickly because uh, there are no medications or the treatment of stimulant use disorder. There are medications that may be used to manage symptoms, but in terms of managing stimulant use disorder, the components of managing tolerance and withdrawal that may develop, there is no analog in the way that there is for alcohol or opioids. There is research that's looking at using naltrexone um, for stimulant use issues in combination with uh, bupropion but it's still really early stage and the results have been less than promising. It's indicated that about, I think, a weighted 11% of individuals benefit from the naltrexone bupropion group compared to controls, which is better than nothing, but it's not really substantial enough to, to indicate that this is an effective medication treatment. Uh, and so at this point in time, there is no medication that exists for stimulant use disorder treatment. Um, what we do know is that contingency management, also called motivational incentives, works really effectively for methamphetamine and cocaine use issues. This work is uh, developed to apply a specific reinforcer for a targeted behavior. So you pick a targeted behavior, whether it's abstinence, attendance and treatment, going to job training, uh, and you specifically reinforce the person's success with that uh, particular goal. It's using a, a systematic delivery of positive reinforcement, oftentimes with a tangible reward, a voucher, a prize, sometimes even um, a, a cash incentive or reinforcement for the submission of something like a methamphetamine-free urine sample. Uh, it's easy to track the targeted behaviors because you have either either they did it or they didn't, especially when you're talking about something like a urinalysis. There's little burden on the counselor or the administrative staff. Uh, you can't reward patients and punish staff. Right? Uh, it's easy to keep the focus on the targeted behaviors. Uh, and if we make that complicated, then it, it, it moves us away from the purpose of what we're talking about with contingency management. Uh, and so what we have to focus on is that patients are not being bribed or paid to, to engage in recovery, right? It's the focus on the, the outcome, the focus on the recovery and uh, reinforcing that. Motivation has to come from within, so they still have to be willing to do it. And you want to reframe the contingency management as an engagement and retention technique. Um, this has actually been found, even though there's a lot of resistance to this, it's been found to, even in scenarios where a, a cash um, in reinforcer is utilized, it still comes out to being cheaper from a treatment standpoint than not using a contingency management piece. Uh, so there's a cost savings associated with this as well as a functional outcome uh, to this. There are apps that can be used for contingency management. Uh, Dynamic Care and Reset uh, are uh, 
reset is FDA approved. Both of these help to track different targeted measures and then the outcomes of those. We look at the impact of, again, of contingency management. It is effective. We've seen this in different randomized control trials. Uh, results show that contingency management is impactful in terms of reducing dropout, as well as reducing uh, stimulant use. Another meta-analysis showed that uh, the combination of contingency management and a community-based reinforcement approach is the most efficacious and most acceptable treatment in the short term and the long term. Um, other psychosocial interventions have weak or nonspecific effects on stimulant problems. So if you're thinking about trying to impact an individual's stimulant use, I would think about using a very targeted and specific behavioral reinforcement intervention. This can be generalized to community reinforcement approaches in which you are taking a, an environmental contingency and incorporating that into a person's behavioral coping strategies. That's things like behavioral skills training, social and recreational counseling, marital therapy, motivational enhancement, job counseling, relapse prevention. Um, for some of this, you can add a voucher-based reinforcement uh, or some sort of tangible reinforcement-based component to the program. This is this incorporates more of the programs that we would typically utilize in traditional uh, treatment. Again, drawing back to ensuring that we're using some sort of specific reinforcer for a targeted behavior. Community reinforcement uh, shows increased retention rates and treatment completion compared to standardized drug treatment. Um, community reinforcement in combination with case management, uh, individuals were more likely to complete treatment, they had longer continuous abstinence, and they had improved measures of drug and psych uh, um, impairments during the course of treatment. In combination with contingency management, uh, it's been shown to reduce the use of cocaine during treatment, and it improves functioning at six-month follow-up. Uh, so again, as specifically behavioral as you can get, that results in, in better outcomes. Uh, it's that idea of that structure that you're imparting, that you're modeling, that you're reinforcing with the individual that enhances prefrontal cortex functioning along the way. CBT is great for that as well. Using a structured approach in CBT helps to, to counteract the, the neurological deficits that we talked about. Um, you want to identify triggers. You want to be able to recognize situations in which an individual is likely to encounter a trigger related to stimulant use and develop coping skills that are based on avoidance of those situations, but also being able to cope with discomfort when a trigger is experienced. Um, CBT is compatible with a range of other treatments. And what we're going to provide to you is a functional analysis template uh, functional analysis is a great way to go step-by-step step through uh, triggers, thoughts, cravings, what led up to use, and then what happened after, keeping the person very focused on identifying the most recent episode of use so that you can start to have a conversation about that without being overwhelmed by the entire history of their use. You can focus on the here and now a little bit more looking at the behaviors that need to be addressed currently, and then trying to develop a plan that will hopefully reinforce a pattern of, of um, self-management or coping in the immediacy as you're addressing other mental health issues that may be coming up. Relapse prevention is focused on <laughs> addressing negative emotional states, social pressure, and interpersonal conflict to reduce ongoing uh, stressors that could induce uh, a, a relapse 
or a desire to, to go back to use. Uh, we wanna make sure that we're incorporating relapse prevention into our treatment goals so that we are focused on moving forward. One of the best ways of, or one of the recommendations that we have of combining all these different models is the matrix model. Um, I think the workbook is great to draw different worksheets from. We'll provide a link to that as well. Um, and this is something where you don't have to go through the matrix training to be able to use some of the worksheets in this treatment manual. Uh, if you're unsure of how to bring up internal versus external triggers with your client, pull that worksheet from this, this workbook. If you're working with somebody who's homeless and the major issue is that they don't want to give up meth because they're worried that it might make them vulnerable to uh, being victimized or robbed or, or um, assaulted when they're out on the street, uh, they probably don't want to do a worksheet. So maybe you don't have to give them the physical worksheet, but you can still talk through it in a way that's structured and drawing upon this information uh, to model that component of predictability that we talked about. Thank you for posting those links. Uh, and as I said, we have a few more resources that we'll get to you as we move forward in this. Physical exercise has also been shown to um, impact methamphetamine use issues. Uh, so in one particular study, individuals were assigned either to an eight-week, three times a week structured aerobic and resistance exercise intervention or an eight-week health education condition. Uh, the outcome measure collected through study enrollment and then at 12 weeks follow-up as well. Um, what they found is that exercise improves post-treatment outcomes, that fewer exercise participants return to meth use compared to education-only participants. Uh, significant interaction was found for self-reported meth use and meth urine drug test results. There, there was a lower severity, lower severity users in the exercise group reported using meth significantly fewer days at the three post-discharge time points than the lower severity users in the education group. Uh, so we're looking at some of the positive benefits of exercise. You see that it improves um, mood as well. There are impacts on depression and anxiety. And so if there's co-occurring uh, anxiety and depression, this might be a, a worthwhile component of treatment to integrate. Uh, it's probably not inside our scope of practice to advocate for a specific exercise regimen, but uh, thinking about involving that as a case management goal, finding some opportunity to consult with somebody that could assist with uh, some type of movement could be beneficial. Final recommendations for outpatient stimulant use disorder treatment. Time in treatment is one of the best predictors of positive outcomes. And so engagement and retention cannot be understated. If you can get somebody into treatment and they stay in treatment for over 90 days, they are significantly more likely to have positive outcomes as a result of that treatment episode. Um, we wanna practice treatment retention. So that means engaging the individual using those good motivational techniques, but maybe also talking to them about what kind of support they'll need in that six, to 12 month period where those neural connections are starting to reform. Uh, treatment should include early on three to five clinic visits per week. So we should have a lot more contact, frequent regular contact with someone early on in, uh, in treatment. Use evidence-based methods uh, to, to facilitate recovery. Think about contingency management using a community reinforcement approach, uh, CBT and MI are also really effective and draw upon that matrix model, having a structured model to defer to when you are able to. Involving family and supports are beneficial. 12-step programs appear to improve outcomes as well. If somebody is looking for kind of that linkage to community, a 12-step program might be uh, beneficial. 
And then urine testing done weekly is recommended, but not in a way that is meant to be punitive. It's meant as another assessment mechanism to, to really determine uh, what type, uh, what's going on with the individual, um, how is their functioning at that point in time. I also think that it's important to have a conversation about recovery throughout our, our time with a client that we should always be focusing on defining recovery individually, that recovery is a very, very personal uh, process for individuals. So they should be defining recovery and what it means to them. Uh, and then we should be thinking about facilitating that recovery through linkage to other recovery supports that might be community supports. It might be things like um, 12 step. It might be things like parenting groups. If we're talking about uh, expectant parents uh, or those types of support groups that somebody may be engaged in. SAMHSA identifies uh, these 10 guiding principles of recovery. By no means does this define recovery, but these are components that we should be thinking about incorporating into our conversations when we're talking about recovery with a client, uh, that we have to hold a hopeful perspective that recovery is possible. It is very person-driven and it is very individualized. There are many, many different pathways to recovery, uh, and not every pathway works the same for every individual. And so we have to be willing to try different avenues, different, different routes. Uh, recovery is holistic. While we look at incremental progress, we're really talking about trying to move this person to a place where they experience their recovery as total in their functioning. Peer support is important. We wanna link them to individuals like peer navigators, uh, potentially individuals in our service settings with lived experience, uh, potentially community supports as well. There's a relational component. I think that kind of goes without saying. We want to incorporate aspects of culture. Uh, we want to make sure that we're addressing trauma. We want to look at the individual's strengths, but also their responsibility in facilitating recovery and moving towards that, and always approach people with a degree of respect. Final thoughts, uh, psychostimulant use is increasing in the U.S. Um, it varies depending on racial, ethnic group, location in the U.S. Uh, challenges related to purity and potency have increased because of the way that it's made. Uh, and then we're also dealing with co-ingestion or co-occurrence of substances um, in treatment. We're seeing availability of cocaine and methamphetamine becoming widespread. We know the effects on the central nervous system. We know the impacts on the brain. We know that healing is possible. However, it takes time and a lot of support from you as a provider. There are a variety of specific behavioral interventions that have been shown to be effective. However, at this point in time, there is no FDA-approved medication uh, that exists yet. Cross our fingers, hopefully something is coming along, but at this point in time, uh, that's not something that is in our tool belt, uh, but recovery is possible, uh, especially with the, the hard work that you all are doing. We're gonna hand out a sheet uh, via email to you uh, and it'll include these resources as well as some others. So we're gonna send you a sheet that includes these links, uh, the functional analysis, and then some of the, the um, links that were posted in the chat as well as that child welfare one. Just in the interest of, if you're interested in expanding your learning, if you're interested in diving into this a little bit more, we wanna make sure that those resources are available to you. Thank you once again for joining us 
to talk about stimulants. Any component of this curriculum can be accessed at that website. You can reach out to me via email at any time. Uh, thank you all very much again for being here. It was nice to see you. It was nice to see familiar faces and spend a little bit of time with you all. Um, take care. Hopefully we can do it again soon. Thanks, everybody.